You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hey everybody, Liam here. I've been doing this show for about six years now, and ever since I started, people have been asking me, when am I going to cover Julia Morgan? And the reason it's taken so long is because, honestly, I've been a little intimidated. What can East Bay Yesterday say that hasn't already been said before? Julia Morgan wasn't just one of the most renowned architects of the 20th century. She was a true pioneer in her profession. She was the first woman to be admitted to, uh, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, which was the most important architecture school of its era. She was the first woman in California to earn an architecture license, and she eventually became the first woman to win the American Institute of Architects' highest honor. Then there's her buildings. She's best known for the Hearst Castle, but over Julia's long career, she designed hundreds of impressive structures. The Berkeley City Club, the Oakland YWCA, the Asilomar Conference Center, the Bell Tower at Mills College, and the list goes on and on. Because she was a woman, she didn't always get the recognition she deserved during her lifetime. But in more recent decades, she's been the subject of numerous books, documentaries, museum exhibits. As someone who is definitely not an architecture expert, I was stumped when I tried to think of a fresh angle for covering Julia Morgan. Then I heard about a book coming out this October called Drawing Outside the Lines. Yeah, it's another Julia Morgan book, but this one is totally different. Instead of covering her career and her legacy, like all the other books, this one is focused on young Julia, her time at Oakland High and Cal in the 1880s and 1890s. Because there's not much documentation about Julia's childhood in the East Bay, the author, Susan J. Austin, wrote this as a work of historical fiction. Although Susan is quick to point out that she did a ton of research, so it's based heavily in fact, at least as much as possible. Uh, and one more thing, it's written in the first person so the reader gets to experience the world of Victorian-era Oakland and Berkeley through Julia's eyes. Drawing Between the Lines is meant to be accessible to readers as young as 10, but I really enjoyed reading it. And I also really enjoyed recently talking with Susan as well. So if you want to hear about how she brought the late 1800s to life in her book, uh, her favorite local Julia Morgan buildings, and much more, stay tuned. Oh, and if you want to hear about a couple events I've got coming up in the next few weeks, stick around for the credits. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. This is East Bay Yesterday. All right, I'm here today with Susan J. Austin, the author of Drawing Outside the Lines, a Julia Morgan novel, and... I want to start out, Susan, by asking you about the sort of Morgan mania that seems like it's been sweeping the world in the last couple of years. Uh, in the last decade or two alone, 
there's been this huge upsurge in interest in Julia Morgan. Several books, I mean, many books, podcasts, all kinds of people talking about her. It seems like even though she's been gone from about 75 years now, that she is more popular than ever. What do you attribute that huge upsurge in interest to? Well, the immediate answer for, for the last year might just have something to do with the fact that this year, 2022, is the 150th year since her birth. So it's an opportune time to recognize her. I would say the other reason is that women have been very vocal in getting the attention to Julia Morgan that she deserves. Uh, when I first visited the Hearst Castle, by the way, many years ago, Julia Morgan wasn't even mentioned. Well, that changed, thank goodness. She, I think if she was mentioned, it was in a very passing, by the way. So I think times have changed. I think women have taken a part in this. Uh, Julia's recognition by the Architectural Institute of America where she got the gold medal posthumously. Right. And that's like the highest important. architectural highest award? Highest award you can get, yeah. but it was like 50 plus years after her death. Wow. wow. So it's, it is a lot of recent, recent um, attention, and I'm delighted with it. Yeah. So I've checked out several of the Julia Morgan books that have come out in recent years. There's some beautiful uh, kind of coffee table style books that show a lot of her most famous buildings. There's a book that specifically focuses on the Berkeley City Club that she designed uh, originally for the Women's Club of Berkeley. But your book is a little bit different. It's um, historical fiction. So you, you base this book in fact, but you're writing it in the first person from the perspective of a young Julia Morgan uh, growing up in Oakland, California, and then attending college at Berkeley. And I'm wondering, in order for you to make this book work, you really had to make the reader feel like they were like, they were a young woman living in the late 1800s in the East Bay. So how do you go about creating that world? And I want you to start by telling me a little bit about what Oakland would have looked like in the 1870s and 1880s when Julia was growing up here. Yeah. To begin, uh, Oakland, what did it look like? Um, when her family moved into their beautiful Oakland home at 14th and Brush that they spent years dreaming about and, and building, some of the roads were still dirt, and there were, there were not paved concrete uh, sidewalks. And a lot of horse, I mean, horse and buggy, and that was the main mode of transportation. There were oak trees in Oakland. They're gone, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was a, a very striking image of early Oakland. Um, writing about this time um, obviously took an enormous amount of research, and I spent several years buried in things. And for me, photographs, images, are really powerful tools, and that was very, very helpful. But the, the research alone wouldn't do it. If you read um, earlier books about Julia Morgan and you wanted to know about her early years, you would see three sort of sentences born in San Francisco, raised in Oakland. You might have seen she went to Oakland High School, but the next sentence was usually, and she went to Berkeley to major in engineering and the rest is sort of history. And then from there, we know that story really, really well. But basically there was very little. And I'm very interested in young people with dreams. And Julia had a dream. 
and she made it happen through in a very difficult time to be a young girl with a dream that took her outside of the expectations of the day. So curiosity was a big driver, research was a big driver, and then comes the most important part of writing historical fiction after you feel you have the research down is imagination. Mm. And you, you just said something very interesting, Liam. You said, and it was written in first person, early drafts were not, and this is a really important part of the story. Um, what we do know about Julia Morgan was she was a very private person, and her most well-known quote that you will read in almost any biography is, if you want to know who I am, look at what I've done, look at my buildings, and you'll know about me. She didn't do interviews, she didn't write about herself, she wasn't an egomaniac, so she didn't feel impelled to do press pieces and, and, and talk about herself. So I realized I had a very interior character, someone who was very super bright, very driven, very interior, and only when I went to first person did she come alive for me and my readers. So that, I'm really glad you asked me that question. Yeah. Well, how do you answer that question in terms of um, Julia saying, if you want to know me, look at my buildings. What do looking at her buildings tell you about her? Well, now, now you're into the architecture of the time. And what I have heard, what architects have told me, and what I've read about her architecture, which is not something I write a lot about in this book. This, this book is from Julia 11 to 21. And it's a book that tells how she arrived at this, this desire to build. And it was her early years before she even had a class in architecture. If you, but what we hear about her as an architect is she, in an unusual way, was very sensitive to listening to her clients and trying to do what her clients wanted as opposed to what she wanted to do. So her architecture is very diverse, very eclectic, and very powerful in that way because she was so responsive to the needs of her client, which was quite unusual. Hmm. So yeah. that, I mean, the architecture was very much of, of the most innovative architecture of the day. And if you go further into it, some of her buildings, many of her buildings still survive because of her brilliant work, her training in engineering and her brilliant work in reinforced concrete. There's, there's this uh, quality that you write about in the book regarding how Julia was just so steadfast and unshakable in her uh, desire to you know, break out of the traditional roles that were expected of women and emerge as this great architect. And I think um, just thinking about how she or how she's reflected in her buildings, I'm thinking of, for example, the famous Campanile at um, Mills College that withstood the earthquake and everyone was shocked. And that was sort of made her reputation because so many other buildings fell down and little five foot tall Julia Morgan made this reinforced concrete structure that withstood that cataclysm and is still standing to this day. And so I feel like if we're talking about the qualities of her building reflecting the person, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of strength there, clearly. I, I love the <laughs> fact that you, you note her size, because I think that's really important. <laughs> um, she's really was really tiny, barely five feet, barely 100 pounds, which is why I would like to point out, although your, re your listeners can't see it, the cover has acorns on it. And there's a reason for those 
Oakland oak acorns on it because one of the powerful images for me was what you just said was, you know, the expression from tiny acorns, great, great trees grow, whatever that expression is. That was Julia. You know, she was just a tiny thing who did great things. Mm -hmm. And so you have this great main character. But one of my favorite things about the book, too, was that you incorporated little bits of sort of trivia from the era that she grew up in. And I'm thinking of like old timey slang, like chuckaboo and fashion trends, like these kind of plug hats that were very uh, trendy among Berkeley students in the, in the 1880s. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you discovered things like chuckaboo? What, what did that mean? And can you give some other examples of things that you were maybe researching and you're like, Oh, that's a good little tidbit about this era. I've got to incorporate it into the book. Yeah. The tidbits, (laughs) Um, well, the, the Victorian slang was easy. Although, when you look up Victorian slang, you get a lot of stuff that's not appropriate for kids. <laughs> so, Chuckaboo, that's a good one. I love that. That was re- the reference to her, her smiling mother. At, her mother was so proud of her new house, and I think that's when I used Chuckaboo. Your mom has turned into a Chuckaboo, Julia. Um, uh, that, and it kind of means friend, right? It means yeah. happy, smiling, you know, chuckaboo. And then yeah. we never, you know, I never heard that I'd word. never heard that word before. No. 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 So it was a, a matter of looking at, at lots of Victorian, discussions of Victorian language styles. Mm. And it had to be American, not British. So there's right. that difference. Right. Um, what was your other question, Liam? Oh, just about like what were some of the other tidbits from that era that you wanted to include? Well, in the book? I, actually, it's it's more than tidbits. Mm. Um, to, to find my story, I had to know more about what li- everyday life was like, as you suggested, transportation, um, but also what events were going on in the world that might have affected her life that she would have been aware of, and that. Um, brought the story to life. I, I really, my, I mean, my goal is to introduce young readers to a period they know nothing about. Yeah, although some things haven't changed. I was chuckling yeah. when I got to your section about Julia and her friend putting on roller skates. Because if you go down to like the lake or Brooklyn Basin in Oakland now, you see people roller skating all over the place. So clearly some trends are still, you know, are here to stay. Yeah, except those skates were wood and leather. That's the difference. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. That's exactly right. And they were skating on that new pavement that got laid. Right, yeah. right. So you have Julia Morgan interacting with several other well-known historical figures in this book who she crosses paths with. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those cameos? Who did you include in the book that readers might be familiar with or other historical figures? And how much of those connections that you write about were based in fact and research that right. you did? A good, great question. Um, they all intersected it with her in her life. She knew them all. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one I, I bet you're thinking of is Gertrude Stein. Uh, Gertrude Stein was two years younger than Julia Morgan. And I spent a lot of time looking at local newspapers to see what was going on, what are they saying about the high school. So when Julia was in high school, Gertrude Stein was two years beneath her and was a member of this group of women that took bike rides and things like that. Julia Morgan was not. But I saw Gertrude Stein's listed on this bike outing the girls went on. So I 
I did put Julia in it. I don't think she went on that yeah. ride, but yeah. that was a great opportunity for a cameo spot for somebody that interests me. Another one was Edwin Markham, which the, probably many people today don't know about. He was a principal in a local Oakland high school. And while he was principal, and involved in a very interesting story, which is in the book, he wrote a poem called The Man with the Hoe, which became an overnight sensation and, and sealed his name in the book of great poets. And I, I wanted to include him for personal reasons, so I was glad to have him. And Frank Norris, he was in Julia Morgan's class at Cal, a very fine writer. He was a writer then, and he became a, a very well-known writer after Cal which he did not graduate from. He didn't make it through. <laughs> I, I didn't know that he intersected with Julia Morgan at Cal, but I was my, my eyes perked up when I saw the Frank Norris reference yeah. because I quote from his book, The Octopus, on these boat tours that I do of the Oakland Estuary because that's the section of the tour where I talk about how the railroads gained monopoly control over the Oakland waterfront. Yeah. And of course, there's this very powerful uh, an, uh, metaphor that Frank Norris uses in his book where he's describing the, the railroad barons as sort of an octopus with their tentacles in every facet of society. He calls yeah. them like a soulless beast, the iron-hearted power, the, red, the red-eyed colossus, all these things. And wow, I mean, the guy could really <laughs> write a pretty intense description, yeah. but I didn't know that he was a Cal at the same time as Julia Morgan. He certainly was, and he, was, he wrote the final, their senior year pageant for them. The, every senior class at Cal did a pageant. And you know what, speaking of the yeah. graduations at Cal, I totally forgot, even though the Greek theater is probably my favorite place in uh, the Bay Area to see an outdoor concert, just absolutely, I was just there a couple weeks ago, beautiful weather, beautiful sunset, amazing venue. I forgot about the Julia Morgan connection to that building. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, there are two. Or, I'm not, I shouldn't say building, the amphitheater. The amphitheater. Well, there are two. Her class, the class of 1894, uh, used that site when it was a eucalyptus grove for their final, their senior pageant, and that's, that story is in the book. So that, that amphitheater was uh, 10 years after the seniors used it for their pageant and subsequent classes. It became the Greek theater, and that was funded by William Randolph Hearst and became one of Julia's first, when she came back from France, the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, uh, that was one of her first positions uh, on campus with John Galen Howard, um, fixing up that Greek theater that was still not finished because they were expecting a visit from the President of the United States, and she did a brilliant job wow. of finishing it off so it was Presentable, And that was Roosevelt at the time? Roosevelt at wow. the time. The first Roosevelt. The first theater. <laughs> so one of the recurring situations in the book is Julia Morgan being in these classes with basically all men. Cause these are, you know, science and engineering classes, which women were um, not encouraged to participate in, to put it lightly. And... She, of course, got a lot of pushback from men. Uh, you write about it in the book, and I'm sure this was based in fact. It seems like men were threatened by this idea of women joining their field. Can you talk about that a little bit? How difficult was it for Julia Morgan to break into this world that was virtually all men? She was like the only woman in a lot of these situations. And how did she overcome those challenges? 
I think it's the same way that she managed to work so well for nearly 30 years with William Randolph Hearst. I mean, there's a man for you with a lot of strong opinions. She was a quiet person, a strong, internally strong person. Um, she grew up with brothers. She had to figure out how to deal with brothers at an early age. But she was uh, smart enough to know that pushback isn't going to work for her. But persistence would work. And that's the theme of this story of persistence, to get what you want. And, and Julia figured out a very, very good way to manage the men in her life. Um, and it wasn't just the men who were discouraging her from pursuing no, her dream. No, I mean, no. as you write in the book, uh, it was expected of women to basically, or as, at least a certain class of women, to basically go down this route of being a debutante, yeah. present yourself to high society around your 18th birthday, and then get married and start having kids as soon as possible. And this is the route that her mom wanted for her. Of course she did. Yeah. But her mother, in the end, did support her. Yeah. And I, I need to say that. There is an image, a lot of I got a lot of great stuff on the college years from going through the yearbooks, the blue and gold yearbooks. And there is an image there that really struck me. The men produced this pretty much. There were women at Cal, but as you noted in Julia's track, there were very few, very rare. But the image that is, it's a cartoon. And it's, it's a two-piece cartoon. The first one shows women going into Cal and they're dressed in fine clothes, and they look very feminine. And then, four years later, it shows that same woman in a black gown and a tasseled hat and wearing glasses and sitting in front of a pile of books. So I think they also believe that, that women really don't belong there. They belong at home, in the kitchen, doing those sorts of things. And if they go to college, they're going to be different women. They're not going to be as feminine and appealing as they were when they came in. Mm. That's interesting because at first when you were describing the woman coming out in the graduation gown with the books, I thought that was supposed to represent something positive, but you're saying that this was uh, probably pretty critical of women getting an education, huh? That's how I read it. Wow. That's wow. how I read it. She was not, with the glasses and her hair pulled back and everything, she was not the same attractive woman that they saw going in. Mm. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons why I appreciate studying history and reading books like this is because often looking around at our current political culture, <laughs> our current environmental crisis, or the overlapping crises, I should say, yes. and basically all the things that are very depressing in our modern world, I think it's easy to get kind of bogged down and frustrated and feel like we're going in the wrong direction and everything's terrible. But looking at things with the long lens sometimes, like if we're looking at the last 150 years, 200 years of how much progress women have made, for example, in this country and, and around the world, just in terms of breaking down so many barriers to getting the right to vote, <laughs> being able to uh, work, uh, jobs outside of the home, etc. Um, I think that does show a progression. Of course, there's still a long way to go. There's still a gender wage gap and incredible amount of discrimination, violence, patriarchy, etc. Um, but how was it for you doing this book now? Because um, it's in some ways a very feminist book. You know, this is telling a story of a woman overcoming the, the challenges, the patriarchal challenges confronting her. But at the same time, you know, there's still so many 
problems uh, facing women in the world today. Uh, reproductive rights, you know, getting rolled back being one of them, but just there's a lot, a long way, like I said, a long way to go. I always think about my audience and I always think about what do I want their takeaway to be? And um, getting to know Julia took me a long time. Mm -hmm. And getting to get an, and arriving at an idea of how she managed this difficult time, especially as a young girl, when she hasn't the experience and the wisdom that I'm sure she came back with when after her years in Paris. It made it very um, a, a very personal experience. Uh, you know, I, I grew up many years after that, my growing up years, 40s and 50s, um, there were expectations for girls then too, that our two careers, the most prominent careers were teaching and nursing. And to do something other than that took a lot of courage. So I did have that to go on. It, authors always draw on their own experiences. And so I had that, that idea of how do you, how do you get it, have a dream and make it, make it work for you in a time when it shouldn't. Mm. Yeah. So along with Julia Morgan, several other people born in the 1870s uh, who all lived in the East Bay at the same time would go on to achieve international success to the degree that they're still remembered today, which is pretty extraordinary, you know, more than a century later. I'm talking about Jack London, Gertrude Stein, uh, Isidore Duncan, the uh, mother of modern dance. And these were four superstars, basically born all in the same decade, and they all overlapped in Oakland, which was a relatively small city at the time, only a couple thousand people. Um, and so what do you make of this? Is this just kind of a crazy coincidence, or was there something going on here in the East Bay at the time that maybe uh, accounts for such prominent people all kind of emerging around the same time from the same place? I think of that era in two ways. One... Um, there were many Bohemians here. This was a very exciting place to be. There were people who thought outside the box, both in San Francisco and, and here. I don't know if you've read any of the books about the Bohemians. There are two or three, one on, on, that includes Jack London and the, the writers of San Francisco, and one that I just read about um, Dorothea Lange called The Bohemians. Um, yeah, there was a lot going on people coming here because it was a place where they didn't have to conform so much to, mm -hmm. to, to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, in that sense, uh, it was a new, fresh place. And they, they, they were able to do these things. And there are more. You could, we could add to that list of extraordinary people and extraordinary times. And the other was, this era wasn't quite as restrictive as we think, um, the 1880s and 90s, and things were happening. And I think maybe that contributed to these people's ability to be so extraordinary. Yeah. Can you, can you explain a little bit more? What do you mean well, things were happening? Women, you know, women were at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. and there was a pretty good percentage. Well, that's extraordinary. They, were, they had an opportunity there to move out of that box in their own ways. And one of the characters in, the, in, in this book, um, Mary McLean, she went on to become um, a teacher at a university. They, they, they went in, many of the women went into teaching, but they went up the ranks. 
and the woman that just that um, Julia went to Paris with Jessica Bashoto, she became an extraordinary leader on campus. Um, the founder of the, basically the founder of the School of Social Welfare there, the first doctorate in her area. I mean, they were doing extraordinary things mm -hmm. that might not have happened earlier, and, and so this was a good time for them. Yeah. Another thing that I was wondering about in terms of just the things that could have inspired all these young people growing up in Oakland around the same time is, uh, so my very first episode I did about Oakland's first public librarian, who was a woman named Ina Coolbreath. Uh, she was also California's uh, first poet laureate, and we know that she would like let kids borrow library books even though they weren't supposed to. So Jack London wrote her basically like almost like love letters. He was so grateful to her. Uh, I believe Isadora Duncan also knew Ina Coolbreath and had a you know positive relationship with her. Do you know if? Julia ever encountered or maybe cross, you know, cross paths with Anna Coolbreath at any point? I suspect if she did, it would have been in Oakland. Yeah, at the library. At, at the <laughs> library, but I don't know that. Yeah. I mean, I would guess. And actually, I could have put Ina in this story. I think her period is, they overlap. Or maybe Absolutely. it was a little sooner. But they could have, and I would have. And I, I love reading about Ina Coolbreath. Yeah, yeah, she is. Um, folks, listeners, if you haven't checked out episode one, it sounds a little funny because I didn't know exactly what I was doing in terms of podcast production back then, but the story is great. Um, Ina Coolbreath is an absolute hero of mine. Um, I'm, I've got to warn you, Susan, my next question is going to be a tough one. I'm going to put right. you on the spot here. Okay. Julia Morgan has a lot of buildings in the Bay Area, some really beautiful, iconic buildings. Mm -hmm. Tell me about one or two of your favorites. What are your favorite Julia Morgan buildings? If people want to go check them out, what should they go see? Well, my hands-down favorite is the Berkeley City Club, Julia's Little Castle. It's enchanting. And there are docent tours on Sunday afternoons. Check their website. It's an extraordinary building, and it puts together so many elements of her life, of her education and her sensibilities and her whimsy. You get to see her whimsy. So that's clearly clearly one of my most favorite. Yeah, and a lot easier to get there than San Simeon. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's a whole different yeah. story. Yeah. That yeah. is an entirely different story, right. in my opinion. Right, and we don't have to get into that now. No, that I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> right. But the other building yeah. uh, is the, um, it is now the Berkeley Playhouse. It, she built it as a church. I think it was a, a I think it was a Presbyterian church on College um, near Parker, mm -hmm. and there right now it's a, a theater, but it was built as a church, and it's all wood, and it's a very simple, elegant structure, and I, I, I advise your readers to go take a play in there. Think of it as the church that it was, and, and you can really sit there and absorb her, her beautiful art work in arts and crafts, which was that period, and uh, the wood is exquisite and the simplicity is exquisite. It's nothing like anything you'd see at the Hearst Castle. Yeah. Last question. Um, in preparation for this interview, it looks like you pulled out a couple different Julia Morgan books. Yeah. I know this is just a small sample of the many Julia Morgan books that are out there. Your book is uh, aimed at young readers. I, I personally really enjoyed reading it. I think it's a, uh, may I yeah, amend absolutely. that, please? Yes. It, it's, it's 
it's for young readers, 10 and up, and that includes, okay. it could go to 99. I'm, I was going to say, I love it's, reading it's it, an adult, it. I'm not 99. Yeah, but. I know, but I mean, what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 10 and up. No, absolutely, no. Yeah. I, well, I, I enjoy reading it, but no. if there was, um, and, and it's an interesting take, because like you said, it's focusing mostly on this period of her life that the other books have very little, if anything, to say about. But if uh, there's someone who's hearing this conversation and wants to know more about Julia Morgan, is there another book that you would recommend that's more of like a kind of traditional biography? Actually, uh, Kastner's new book, Victoria Kastner, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect is, is rich yeah. in, in all sorts of, you get quite, a, quite a, an education on her biography. And the other one that just, there are, there are three that came out this year. My, well, mine is coming out in October. Mm -hmm. it's, it's only available for pre-order right now and will be available at Mrs. Dalloway's if you want a signed copy. But the other two, the other book I'd like to mention is Julia Morgan, The Road to San Simeon, Visionary Architect of the California Renaissance. It's edited and it's fascinating that, that, that each chapter picks up on a different aspect of her life, including a, a wonderful one by uh, Karen McNeil, on um, her Parisian years, and one really interesting one that I really knew nothing about. If you go to the Hearst Castle, you'll see all that beautiful tile work, and you'll see beautiful tile work in the City Club. There's a story of where that tile came from, and it was a tile company on San Pablo. Really? And you got to read that chapter, Liam. You're going to enjoy it. I do. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, that's in the Road to San Simeon. Wow, and um, I've got to give a shout out to the other yeah. book on the table here, yes. Julia Morgan's yes. Berkeley City Club, The Story of a Building. This one is written by Sarah Gill, and um, I gave a talk about Berkeley history at the Berkeley City Club a couple months ago, and uh, Sarah Gill gave me a copy of this book, and it's just wonderful, and it's very focused on this particular building, which if you're like a local history buff, local architecture buff, uh, I'd say that is one you're definitely going to want to check out. Susan J. Austin, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I encourage everyone to check out the book, Drawing Outside the Lines, um, especially if there's a, a young woman or a young person in your life that you think uh, might benefit from it. I think this is a really good book for, um, I've got a niece whose birthday is actually this weekend, who's like turning 12, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give her my copy, and I think she'll appreciate it. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't recommend it more uh, for that very reason. We want to inspire kids. And you hear a lot today about STEM or STEAM programs. This is uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You know, this is what we need to encourage in, in boys and girls, and this is a great way to do it. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining me again. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Liam. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Okay, so about those events. On September 20th, I'll be doing one of my biggest events yet at the Shotgun Players Theater in Berkeley, right across the street from Ashby Bart. This one is called Bygone Berkeley, and it's about the highs and lows of Berkeley history. Uh, when I debuted this presentation at the Berkeley City Club a few months back, all 250 spots got scooped up really fast. So a lot of people missed it and have been asking me to do it again. Uh, I've made a couple tweaks to the, to the show and I'm doing it again. This time it's co-sponsored by KPFA 
And uh, yeah, I hope you can make it. I know it'll be a good time and I don't expect the tickets to last very long. So check out my website or uh, my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram for the link. And if you can, please help spread the word. Uh, I'm also doing a free virtual event with the Alameda Museum on Monday, October 15th. That one is all about how I make East Bay yesterday. And it'll be full of tips and suggestions for those of you out there who are also interested in gathering and sharing and celebrating local history. Uh, I'll also be at the first annual Cameron Stanford House History Fair with a bunch of other local historians on September 10th. Uh, I believe I'm going to be selling some of my last long-lost Oakland posters at that event, if you haven't got one yet. And uh, let's see what else have I got going on. I'll be doing a live interview with some local authors at the Oakland Library on October 2nd. Uh, details for that will be coming very soon. And uh, you know what? i got a couple other things coming up this fall. If you want to know everything, just sign up for my newsletter. It's free. You can find it at eastbayyesterday.com. And uh, as always, massive shout out to those of you supporting this show on Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the music for this episode came from Justin Lee. Thanks again, Justin. And thanks again uh, to you for listening. All right, that's it. See you again soon.